0: This is a long, mysterious passage today. I know none of you have been able to sleep wondering just who is Melchizedek. So, I'm going to do that today. So, anyways, because it's such a long passage, this chapter, we're actually going to go through it as we go through the sermon and sort of split it up into three sections. So let's begin by going to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as always, this is your word, and as always, we need it. We need it as much as that first congregation needed to hear this message. We need to know that what we need most can't be found in ourselves or in anyone else. We need to know just what it is that we need the most. So by your word, show that to us this morning, For the power of the Holy Spirit, press it home. Make our hearts believe in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On June 27, 1976, armed operatives of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine surprised the passengers and crew of an Air France jet and hijacked it to a destination unknown. The plane was tracked heading for Central Africa, where indeed it landed under the protection of then Ugandan President Idi Amin. And there it remained apparently secure at Entebbe Airport for seven days while the hijackers prepared for their next move. It seemed as if the hijackers held all the cards. However, 2,500 miles away in Tel Aviv, three Israeli C-130 transport planes secretly boarded a deadly force of Israeli commandos under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Netanyahu. Within hours the commandos attacked Entebbe Airport under the cover of darkness and in less than an hour the commandos rushed the terminal where the passengers and crew were being held hostage. The hijackers were all gunned down and the rescue was successful. Three hostages out of 113 were killed in the battle, and only one Israeli commando died in the fight. The commander of the mission, Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Netanyahu, refused to board the airplane until all of his men and all the hostages they could find were safely aboard. He was the last to enter and was shot while getting aboard the plane. The next day after the rescue, was July 4th, 1976, our nation's bicentennial. And the premier of Israel, Yitzhak Rabin, who was assassinated 20 years later in the pursuit of peace, premier Yitzhak Rabin declared that this mission will become a legend, and indeed it has. The raid on Entebbe is considered a high-water mark in Israel, and the name of Jonathan Netanyahu is still spoken in Israel with great awe and respect. Indeed, his letters were published after his death under the title, Self-Portrait of a Hero. And yes, the current Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is his younger brother. Israel's resolve and stealth in liberating her people is admired by her friends and begrudged by her enemies. But if you think about it, Israel's resolve is nothing new because that same quality can be traced all the way back to the very beginning of the Hebrew nation and the prowess of their father Abraham. The hijackers in his day were a coalition of four Canaanite kings who attacked the land of Israel and carried off a large number of hostages, including Abraham's nephew Lot. And you can read the story for yourself in Genesis 14. Undaunted, Abraham recruited 318 trained men, the first Israeli commandos, and he took off in hot pursuit. He caught the hijackers somewhere close to Damascus, and there, under the cover of darkness, he deployed his small force in a surprise attack. Arrows flew, swords flashed, and four kings were put to flight. The Genesis account gives this Entebbe-like summary of Abraham's actions. In Genesis 14, verse 16, it says, "...then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people." Abraham was a formidable warrior. It is not wise to mess with Father Abraham. So Abraham returns home after this battle with the kings, what the Bible calls the slaughter of the kings. And he's a hero. He is at the pinnacle of military success. And just envision him coming back, leading his men and bringing Lot and all of the captives, all the hostages, all the plunder, all the possessions. And he's coming back, headed back to what we would now call Jerusalem, and he's smeared with the blood and dirt of battle. If you can get that image of your mind of him coming back as this victorious warrior, you begin to have a feel, you begin to appreciate his strange, mystic encounter with this shadowy figure of immense grandeur, Melchizedek, the priest king of Salem. Genesis 14 goes on and tells us, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. See, this is pretty mysterious stuff. This is the only historical mention of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And yet Abraham allowed Melchizedek to bless him and then gave him a tenth of everything. He tithed on all the plunder to someone he had never met. Now that was around 2000 BC. And for a millennium, there is no mention of Melchizedek, not even in retrospect. But in the 10th century B.C., when David was king of Israel, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write these words in Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God is declaring he's going to do something new. He would bring into history one who would be both priest in king, like Melchizedek. And this kingdom and priesthood would last forever. And like Melchizedek, he would be appointed directly by God. Now imagine for a moment, you're the writer of Hebrews, and you're writing to encourage this small, suffering, persecuted church, and you want them to keep the faith. And while you're writing, you're reflecting on Melchizedek's history in this prophecy in Psalm 110. And then all of a sudden you make the connection. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that prophecy. He is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Furthermore, you are the first person in history to make the connection. And you begin to think and pray, and everything falls into place. And now in Hebrews 7, you present what you've learned as a means of encouragement to this little storm-tossed church. There is no teaching like it anywhere else in the Bible. And so we begin, starting at verse 1, with a deliberate guarantee. A deliberate guarantee. We read there, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of the most high God, made Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises." It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. The guarantee that God gives to us in Hebrews 7 is a deliberate guarantee. It's rooted in the history of Israel. It's rooted in this mysterious Bible character named Melchizedek. This is because, first, he's significant to Israel. There are a lot of blanks in the outline today. It There just is. There's no reason. I just kept taking the words out and putting in blanks, so that's what you got. He is significant to Israel. Notice, first of all, it says that Melchizedek is a priest. But he's a priest before Aaron and Moses. There's no law yet. There's no sacrifice yet. There's no temple yet. The priesthood hasn't been established yet. But here he is, a priest of God Most High. And again, he's a king. He's the king of Salem. Salem means peace as Jerusalem is the city of peace, so Melchizedek is the king of peace. And in Israel, as in most countries, you don't get to be king unless you come from the royal family. Likewise, you couldn't be a priest unless you came from a priestly family, a particular family in the tribe of Levi, descended from Aaron. And in verse 3 of our passage, it says Melchizedek, was without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Furthermore, we know you have to be one or the other. A priest can't be a king, and a king can't be a priest. They would be descendants of different families. And yet, you know, Melchizedek wasn't descended from a priest or a king, but here he is both priest and king. And to top it off, a Levitical priest had a limited term. He couldn't serve more than 30 years. It's a sort of mandatory retirement. But it says Melchizedek is a priest forever. So we see that he's significant. He's a king in Israel before the kingdom. He's a priest in Israel before the priesthood. None of the normal restrictions apply. Not only is he significant to Israel, we see he's superior to Abraham. He is superior to Abraham. Abraham is the father of Israel. He is the patriarch. So over and over again, you read in the Old Testament, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham always comes first. He's the guy. He's the patriarch. In the eyes of all of the following generations, he's considered the greatest of men. And yet, when he meets Melchizedek, Abraham recognizes his superiority and so pays him a tithe. This is a calculated understanding by Abraham. He's in the presence of someone greater than himself. The writer of Hebrews says it well here in verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. The Levites were able to collect tithes from the people because the law said so. But this man's before the law, before the Levites. And he collects not from the people, but from Abraham himself. Because it's Abraham who's paying, and the Levites are descended from Abraham, it's as if the Levites were paying in advance. And if Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, then he's certainly superior to the Levites. His priesthood is better than theirs. Secondly, it says he blessed Abraham. It's Abraham's job to bless everyone else. Genesis 12 says, all the peoples of the world will be blessed through you, Abraham, Abraham is the one who has the promises. He's the one that God makes the supreme blesser. I'm not even sure that's a word. It is now. All the rest of mankind, for the rest of history, would be blessed through Abraham. But he submits to Melchizedek to receive his blessing because Melchizedek's blessing is even greater than Abraham's. So why is all this important? Well, primarily because he foreshadows Christ. He foreshadows Christ. Melchizedek is what we would call a type, a model, a forerunner of Christ. Some people think this is a pre-incarnate Christ, but there's some problems with that view. It seems more likely he's a type of Christ. Because in one, it says he resembles the Son of Man. And none of the comparisons hold exactly. For example, Melchizedek is a priest higher than the Levites, but Christ is our great high priest. Melchizedek is a king before the kingdom, but Christ is the king of kings and lord of lords. Verse 3 says this person is resembling the Son of God. Christ is the Son of God. Melchizedek has no beginning and no end, but Christ is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Melchizedek collected tithes, even from Abraham. Christ owns everything. It's all his. Tithes and offerings merely acknowledge his ownership and our stewardship. Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. 1 John 2.1 says Christ is the righteous one. Melchizedek is the king of peace. Ephesians two. 14 says that Christ is our peace. Melchizedek's character of righteousness and peace are perfectly fulfilled in Christ. Melchizedek's qualifications to be priest and king are surpassed by Christ. Melchizedek's purpose is to point to Christ. Everything about Melchizedek should be directing our attention to Jesus. So not only is there this deliberate historical guarantee There's also a doctrinal guarantee. Look at verses 11 through 19, a doctrinal guarantee. We're really going to focus in on the last two verses, but let me go ahead and read them. It says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. That's a great explanation of Jesus. The power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. So you see, there's a problem in Judaism. Same problem there is for us today, for all people today. We are sinful people, and God is a holy God. Holiness and sinfulness don't mix. We would have to be perfect to come into the presence of a holy God. And we're not perfect. At least I'm not, and I don't have high hopes for you. Sorry. But then we discover in verse 11 that the priesthood can't make us perfect, because the priesthood is insufficient. It's insufficient. The priesthood can't do it. It can't make us holy. They could try to atone for our sins by a blood sacrifice, but even that's just a representation of what's supposed to be happening on the inside. And verses 11 through 17 teach us we don't need a priest based on ancestry and regulation. We need a priest who has the power of an indestructible life. Love that phrase. The old priesthood was insufficient. And not only is the priesthood insufficient, but then we're told the law was insufficient. The law was insufficient. Verses 18 and 19 teach us, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. The law itself is insufficient. It's called weak and useless, because although it teaches us how to live, and it teaches us how to please God, we cannot be saved by it. We cannot be made perfect to stand in the presence of a holy God by the law. The law shows us our need. The law reveals just how sinful we really are. The law shows us that we need someone who is perfect to make atonement for our sins. Galatians chapter 3 teaches us the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law sort of kept us had charge of us until Jesus came and we could be saved by him. But if the priesthood is insufficient and the law is insufficient, we need something better. And verse 19 tells us, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And so we see that the hope, Jesus Christ, is sufficient. The hope is sufficient. The better hope by which we draw near is Christ. Christ is the one who's given us access to the Father. Christ is the perfect one who atones for our sins. Christ is the one who's sufficient, who makes us perfect, who cleanses us from sin in order that we might come into the presence of a holy God. We need a priest who's better than Aaron and the Levites. We need a perfect priest. And we have one in Christ. We need a covenant that's better than the law. We need a perfect sacrifice, a perfect atonement, a perfect fulfillment of the law. And we have one in Christ. But Hebrews 7 doesn't stop there. Because not only do we have a deliberate guarantee and a doctrinal guarantee, we have a divine guarantee. Guarantee, all these today. Well, I guess not all, because I threw in a whole bunch of other blanks. So there's like S's and P's and D's. and You can figure it out. Verse 20, a divine guarantee. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So we have a divine guarantee because we have God's word on it. We have a divine guarantee because we have the promise of God. The promise of God. God made an oath in this case, a promise that this hope, Jesus Christ, would be sufficient, would be perfect, would last forever. And verse 22 says, because of this oath, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus is our guarantee of a better covenant. We're no longer in bondage to the law, but because of Christ, we're under grace. The life and work of Jesus Christ is the guarantee of grace for those who've received him as Lord and Savior. Christ is our sure guarantee. We have God's Word on it. And not only do we have a divine guarantee because of the promise of God, we have a divine guarantee because of the permanence of Christ. The permanence of Christ. Verse 24 and 25 tell us, He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is forever. He will never leave, never die, never quit, never stop, never fail. He lives forever, he saves forever, he prays for us forever. And he can do that because his life is perfect, his salvation is perfect, and his prayers for us are perfect. He is our guarantee because he is perfect. And his perfection is permanent. We have the promise of God. We have the permanence of Christ. And we have a divine guarantee because of the person of Christ. We need someone who's not only permanent, we need someone who's holy, blameless, pure, set apart, exalted. And verse 26 says that Jesus is that person. He is perfect. Therefore, he doesn't have to sacrifice repeatedly like the priests of old did. But his sacrifice, his perfect sacrifice, is once for all. Once for all sins, once for all time. His work is perfect, finished, complete. And God is satisfied with Christ. He seeks nothing else. And so we should be satisfied with Christ. And we should seek nothing else but Christ. Because he is our guarantee. So I think it's fitting this Sunday. We're preparing to receive the Lord's Supper. That God's Word says, look back. Look back at history and see how God has prepared His people for His Son. They needed a perfect priest. And God sent Christ. A perfect, permanent priest. They needed a perfect promise, greater than the law. And God sent Christ a perfect promise for salvation. They needed a perfect sacrifice, who would atone for their sin, forgiving and cleansing them and ushering them into the presence of a holy God, and God sent Christ, a perfect person. Usually, however, when we think about what we need, we don't think about priests or promises or salvation or forgiveness. We tend to think about what we want much more than we think about what we need. So Let me ask you, what do you need most? What do you need most? Seriously think about this. What do you need most? An increase in salary? A new laptop computer that's faster than the one you have now? Greater respect from your peers? More satisfying relationships? Would it strike you as hyper-spiritual and unrelated to the most pressing needs of your daily existence, if I were to answer that question by saying that what you need most is Jesus Christ as your great high priest. Because that's precisely what we read in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Our author is telling us that Jesus is more suitable, more appropriate, and more perfectly meets the needs of people like us when we have Jesus for a great high priest. It's Nothing short of profound when you think through the implications, because he's telling us in no uncertain terms that this is, in fact, what we need most. Jesus Christ, in his capacity as our great high priest, is the perfect answer to whatever questions we might ask. Whatever is required for you to experience maximum satisfaction and joy in life now and hereafter, Jesus, acting on your behalf as your great high priest, supplies it. Jesus as your great high priest and Jesus only will do for you what you need most. But not necessarily what you want most. I believe that you and I were created for a purpose. We're not a random collection of molecules formed through endless ages of evolutionary development. I think we exist for a reason with a goal lying before us, and as Jesus, as our great high priest, alone will make it possible for us to reach it and fulfill it. Ultimately to worship God and glorify Him forever. Jesus alone is suitable and is appropriate for the task of helping us enter in to that deepest and most lasting joy for which God created and redeemed us. But think about it, is this not the sales pitch for virtually every product on the market? Whether it's a new car, a faster computer, more fashionable clothes, a more promising career, or a more attractive companion, this world wants you to believe that it can provide what is most suitable and appropriate and perfect and fitting for your soul. But there's in fact only one thing you absolutely must have. Jesus Christ as your merciful and faithful great High Priest. This being true, be assured that the world, the flesh, and the devil will do everything possible to convince you otherwise. Don't believe the lies. Ignore their promises. They provide what is at best, temporary relief and passing pleasure and will eventually destroy you. There is only one thing you need to trust. Jesus Christ, as your faithful and merciful great high priest and the once for all sacrifice on your behalf. So pause for a moment, think deeply, think honestly about this. God is saying to you, And to me, in this passage, there's only one thing that's suitable and appropriate and perfect and fitting to the needs of our souls. Jesus Christ as our great high priest. Here's what that means. Do you need cleansing of your conscience from the guilt and shame of a rebellious life that was devoted to sinful self-indulgence? Do you need a sacrifice to be offered up on your behalf to bridge that gap between you and God? Do you need a hope for the future that will never disappoint? The sort of hope that will energize you in this present moment and sustain you in the difficult days that lie ahead? Do you need a friend who will never cease to pray for you? A friend who will never berate you or betray you or ridicule you or make fun of you or let you down? Do you need to know you are genuinely and eternally loved and cherished even if everybody else abandons you? Do you need to be useful in a cause or ministry that will produce something of everlasting value? No one can meet the genuine needs of your heart and mind and emotions and body and soul except for Jesus Christ as your faithful and merciful great high priest. A lot in this world can satisfy the numerous superficial needs you think are essential to your happiness. In fact, our entire society depends on it for its very existence on convincing you that you need something more than Jesus Christ. It depends on convincing you that you need something other than Jesus Christ. It depends on convincing you that what he does for you as your merciful and faithful great high priest is not enough. Now believe it or not, there are a lot of people in Christian churches who actually look to some religious leader or spiritual celebrity, or perhaps their pastors, elders, deacons, to fulfill this role that only Jesus can fulfill. And when that man or woman who you've set on your pedestal fails and falls, you're shattered. And we're inundated today with moral failures and financial scandals. You should never put your trust in me or any other pastor, elder, deacon, or church leader. I'm not your high priest. I and the other pastors and elders and deacons at Potomac Hills, are just like the priests of the Old Covenant. We're weak, verse 28. We're mortal, verse 23. And we need a sacrifice for our own sins, verse 27. There's only one high priest and his name is not Dave. There's only one high priest and his name is Jesus. And he alone merits your trust. So the point of these words here at the end of this chapter is that there is only one who suits the needs of your soul. There is only one who perfectly meets every need and every cry of your heart. And there is only one who is appropriate to your predicament, whatever that predicament is. And his name is Jesus. And so this morning, he's asking you through his word, by his spirit, to stop trusting in yourself to stop trusting in the things of this world and to start trusting in him for what you need most trust him for the forgiveness of your sins and the cleansing of your soul trust him for the once for all a perfect sacrifice on your behalf trust him for the faith hope and love that you can find nowhere else he's your great high priest and he wants you to repent and believe, and he invites you to his table that you may receive his mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. As we pray, let's begin to prepare our hearts for communion, for coming to the table of our great high priest. Let's pray. O Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. As always, open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Thank you that you have given him to us as our great high priest who loves us, forgives us, and saves us. We have come to God through him. He is the perfect, permanent priest who offered the perfect sacrifice for each one of us once and for all. He completed his work on the cross as you will complete your work in each of us. And he lives forever. Jesus, you live forever. And you forever live to thoroughly save us and your whole church, your bride. You were our substitute for sin by your life and by your death, and now you're our righteousness, and you live always and forever to intercede for us before the Father with your perfect prayers. Drive these truths deep into our hearts and bring us to your table with hearts that believe, no matter what, that Jesus is better. Amen.